Python X Mortis season three. And Ooh. we are kicking off our third season. Well, I guess I should say I'm Kenny and I'm here with <laughs> Heather. That's the first time I've forgotten that. Uh, I don't know if you forgot. I think maybe it was just going to come a little bit later. Yeah. Um, maybe that's a bad omen. What? For the podcast. Why? What is wrong with you? Why would you say something like that? <laughs> well, I don't know, because maybe it is. Uh, thanks. You like don't you? You're you're saying this as someone who doesn't believe in omens to someone who definitely believes in omens. So you're just blatantly fucking with me, and hmm. I don't love it. So anyway, uh, today we are looking at another classic horror film, and. Uh, this one is a surprise because we didn't say what it was the last time, mm -hmm. uh, but it is Troll 2 from 1990. Does it count as a classic horror film if it's from 1990? Is that classic? I mean, I think we 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 would count The Silence of the Lambs, uh, and that was just know. from the, the next year. I feel like that's when you hear Nirvana on the classic rock station. You're like, okay, come on. Like... Mm. You know, it makes you feel old. Okay, well, we'll say a modern classic. Okay, it's better. And uh, this is a film released in 1990, written and directed by Claudio Fragasso, with a screenplay based on a story written by Fragasso and his wife, Rosella Drudy. It stars Michael Stevenson and George Hardy, and features a musical score by Carlo Maria Cordio. A sequel in name only to the 1986 film Troll, uh, because the name was originally Goblins, which makes sense uh, if you've seen the film, uh, but they changed it to Troll 2 prior to release in order to capitalize on the success of the first Troll film. So kind of like Cat People? Like Curse of the Cat People, you mean? Yeah, or... that, well, I mean like, you know, the, the Cat People um, franchise, I guess. Yeah. Yeah, but yeah, Curse of the Cat People is a similar situation in that it's really not a sequel to Cat People. Like, you really don't need to see Cat People first. Um, um, was there anything? Because I haven't seen Troll 1. Um, is there any sort of connection between the two or? No. Okay. Um, but fun fact, uh, Troll, the 1986 film, is the first Harry Potter film. What does that mean? Uh, one of the main characters is named Harry Potter. Really? Yeah. It's How the weird. character played by Michael Moriarty. Huh. So I picked that up from a Cinemassacre video. <laughs> I have not actually seen the film Troll. But uh, but yeah, that's a good piece of trivia for Trivia Night. What was the first Harry Potter film? It was actually I Troll. Don't, I don't think that's going to hold up. I, I don't see what's... I don't, I don't see where the logic... <laughs> falters there okay but uh i guess let's roll right into or troll right into our <laughs> plot summary uh so spoiler alert um i think we would both agree this is a, a great film yeah definitely so uh if you're thinking about seeing it you should definitely check it out before uh, listening to the rest of this episode uh mm -hmm. but here goes here's the plot summary Grandpa Seth is reading a bedtime story to his young grandson, Joshua, in which a man is pursued and eaten alive by a group of goblins. 
Upon reaching this horrible conclusion, Joshua seeks reassurance that such creatures don't exist in reality, only to be told that they are real. Your grandpa Seth is telling you. The bedtime story is interrupted by Joshua's mom, Diana, at which point it is revealed that Grandpa Seth is a ghost that only Joshua can see. The next day, Joshua's family, including his father Michael and big sister Holly, take a vacation to the small town of Nilbog. Seth warns Joshua that this town is inhabited by goblins who trick strangers into eating green food that turns them into plants, which the goblins then devour and he even helpfully stops time long enough for Joshua to piss all over the deadly meal the goblins have prepared for his family. Meanwhile, Holly's boyfriend and his overly clingy friends Arnold, Drew, and Brent have followed Holly and her family to Nilbog. They too are in danger of falling prey to the goblins. With Seth's help, Joshua will try to convince his family of the truth and escape from the deadly vegetarian creatures. Okay, that's my plot summary. Very um, good. So I believe you had never seen this before, Heather. No. Have have you seen it before? Oh, of course. Oh, sorry. I'm the uncultured one here. I mean, it's one of the great horror films of all time. So. Okay, well, I hadn't seen, like, a lot of the stuff that, you know, we've either covered or talked about covering, so... Yeah, and I think that's part of the fun of the show. Is, Definitely. Is that you're having this experience for the first time. or I think next time, not to give anything away, well, not next time. In a few episodes from now, we'll be having the opposite experience where you've seen it and I haven't. Oh, but yeah. Yeah, that'll, that's going to that's gonna be a first, and I think I'm going to really like that um, like role reversal. Mm-hmm. Um, so I guess I'll start with uh, the favorite question. Uh, what are your favorite and least favorite aspects of the film? Um, well, I, I genuinely thought it was really scary. Mm, yeah. So it's one of those ones where I, I had trouble watching because I was like disturbed by a lot of it, which I guess that speaks to like how good of a film it is because... You know, if it has that much of an effect, you know what I mean? Absolutely. So it's one of those stick with you type things. So I have to pay respect to that, even though it was horrifying. Any particular so, moments? Um, I don't like it when the people turn into plant, like they infuse with the plants. Mm-hmm. Like, oh, so, so Arnold's character like becomes like part plant, part human, because... That's how the goblins eat you, is you basically become a plant, right? I found it really disturbing. Like, it was, like, you know, pretty much any time someone is silenced, like, they can't speak, I find that really disturbing. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, I was pretty much, like, in horror watching that whole scene happen. So. Yeah. And that's a that's a classic scene. Uh, that's see right references to that all over when he says the immortal line they're eating her and then they're going to eat me oh my god right it's bone chilling it is it's just uh i don't know it's like you've seen so many imitations of it 
and then you go and see the original and it just blows everything away that's right like i've seen that scene out of context and that was my only like um you know reference to the film so yeah it's kind of like actual... this film's version of the shower sequence in psycho exactly only i would say it's much more disturbing oh definitely absolutely i mean and then and the part where that whole that whole sequence is i totally agree it's like totally horrifying like when the, the little goblin uh throws the wooden stick at him yeah and uh it just sticks like two inches into his chest and he goes, ah, that is an amazing moment as well. Yes. Yeah, it was very dramatic and really unexpected. So, mm -hmm. you know, I, it was like, oh, you know, you, you gasp, like it's just, ugh. I love the fly that's like crawling around on his forehead too. Um, as he's screaming, oh my god. Like that attention to detail is really it's where this film shines. It's because he's frozen, so he can't move. So mm. it's like, there's nothing he can do. It just shows like, you know, how drastic that is. Yeah, I feel like that's another area where this film really excels, is in conveying information to the audience. Yes, um, I really appreciated that. information that. again, and then again, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. in case anyone forgot. So, like, um, I love how whenever there's a character that's a goblin, and it's been established that they're a goblin before, um, mm -hmm. and then they say something to, uh, you know, one of the human characters that's sort of malevolent, you know? Like, they'll say, oh, we'll treat you very hospitably. Then they'll mm -hmm. always turn away, like, look in the other direction or look into the camera, and kind of make this face like this grimacing smirk and the camera will slowly zoom in on them um and i think that's just that's brilliant i mean it's a way of reminding us that oh yes this is a a goblin this isn't a good character this is a bad character um because right you know sometimes you forget things even if they've been you know spelled out to you numerous times yeah, and like how they keep like reminding us who is related to who and how. Like mm. when, you know, the sister is like, oh, little brother, and he's like, big sis, you know. Like I really appreciated that they kept reminding us because it's pretty easy to like forget those things. So, you know, Absolutely. Grandpa when, Seth is always yeah, reminding like you that he's Grandpa Seth. in their dialogue. Exactly. Great. Like, mm -hmm. and Grandpa Seth and me, his daughter, like, oh, my God, thank you so much. Now I don't have to look it up on IMDb. Yeah. You know, so in a way that it's a film that's ahead of its time. Absolutely. Because you know, they didn't even have IMDb back then, but they're already Ugh. anticipating your, you know, need to look things up. Right. I don't know why more films don't follow suit. Like, pay attention to this cinematic brilliance. Hello. Absolutely. Um, but I think I would have to say my favorite aspect of the film is the acting. Oh, for sure. I actually have some behind the scenes info about really? uh, my favorite actor in the film, um, okay. which is uh, Deborah Reed, who plays Credence Leonore Gielgud of Ancient Druid Origins. Um, so here's what the rumor is uh, that Tilda Swinton actually auditioned for that role. Really? Yeah, but Deborah Reed beat her out, um, hmm. largely on the strength of her ability to convey 
extreme nuance with her facial ex- expressions because there's so many close-ups in the film. Right. Um, so I definitely noticed like she's really good at like facial acting. Mm-hmm. Like you, yeah, she was. It, it's kind of a callback almost to like silent film era, you know how they were really really adept at at making facial expressions like that. Yeah, but with so much more nuance. Totally. Um, and I mean, like some of the choices that she makes are just so brilliant. Like the decision to open her eyes as wide as humanly possible in every single shot. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, that's something that I don't think Tilda Swinton, though she's a great actor, would have thought of. So I, I really can't yeah. imagine anyone else in that role. No, I can definitely. I mean, I, I hate to say it, but I think we can tell who the better actress is. Yeah. Yeah. Although uh, Swinton did get her revenge when she beat uh, Reed uh, to make it into the cast of the 2018 Suspiria remake. Oh. So. Well, there you go. Yeah. I think the child actor who plays Joshua is another standout. Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. I love the choice to um, repeatedly give him a line at the end of a scene and have all the other characters turn to him prior to him saying anything and then have the camera slowly zoom in on him. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then he says, for instance, you're a genius, big sister. And, you know, the line delivery, the timing, you know, everything is so perfect. And the, the film just sets him up for that in such an effective way, I think. Was there anything that you didn't like about the film? Just that it was absolutely horrifying. So, like, basically what I liked about it I also didn't like, I guess, because I'm going to have nightmares forever. Yeah, definitely. Um, I, I think I would have to say the same thing. This might be the first film that we've covered that I don't really have anything negative to say about it other than it's a little too scary. Yeah, um, it's, I mean, that makeup and like the prosthetics and everything like so ahead of its time Mm -hmm. i I don't even know if anyone today can compete with it like holy shit yeah it just blows the thing and american werewolf in london right out of the water the 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 realism of the transformation sequences yeah i i'm gonna be sleeping with the lights on for the rest of the foreseeable future i guess but i think uh really and we've talked about this before, it comes down to the concept of the film. You know, is this something that you're going to be thinking about while you're trying to sleep? Um, Is it something that it just plays on your, you know, worst fears? And I've always had a fear of vegetarians turning me into plants and then eating me. I think everybody has that in in their mind somewhere, right? Yeah. Have you ever met a vegetarian? Jesus. Yeah. It's... It's pretty scary stuff, um, and maybe a little too much so. You know, there's some topics that are just so, so real. Yeah. They're yeah. so relatable um, that, you know, you maybe should back off a little bit. I mean, I'm somebody who enjoys watching things like Martyrs and Cannibal Holocaust, but this is just like a little too far for me. Yeah, I can't believe you made me watch this knowing that I was going to be traumatized forever. Like, oh, I mean, I guess it's worth it because, you know, it's so powerful. But mm-hmm. 
Ugh. It's a life-changing film for sure. Yeah, there's there's a lot going on here because it's not just a horror film. There's like romance happening. There's, oh, yeah. you know, like familial bonds and there's a lot of layers and a lot of aspects of this film that I wasn't expecting. Yeah, I was I was going to point out can you think of a more erotic sequence not even in horror in any film than the shared corn on the cob eating sequence in troll 2 not really like it was really intense mm -hmm. um yeah usually it's like all the elements are there right i mean you got the cheesy synth music you've got awkward pauses and then you mm -hmm. have uh you know just eating different sides of the same corn cob at the same time causing it to explode into popcorn kernels that fly all over the room um i mean i don't know i mean this is a pg rated show i don't even know if i should be talking about this it's so sexy yeah usually in horror films the the you know the sex scenes are pretty campy and like ridiculous and over the top but this was art Hmm. And yeah. I, I, yeah, it, it blew my mind. I was like, this is so, like, visually, you know, stunning, really. Like, it, yeah, they, lots of surprises in this film. That scene was definitely a surprise because just, yeah, the chemistry between the two of them, like, just. Mm -hmm. You know, explosive. Yeah. Well, literally. Yeah, literally. So, um, in addition to being just a masterful exercise in terror, uh, I also think this movie is has a lot to say. Um, mm -hmm. So, what did you think about the themes of the film? Well, I, I recognized a few. Um, I think that grief actually played a big part into it hmm. you know because grandpa seth is dead right and you know he his spirit is like still living on and you know i think maybe it was like a metaphor for keeping someone alive even though they're gone and well yeah joshua says at the beginning right his mom says what did the psychiatrist say and he says that I made up Grandpa Seth in my subconscious. Uh-huh. So, I mean, the film is already planting those seeds in the first scene. Right. Yeah. I think that was pretty intense, you know, and, like, really powerful and really beautiful that not only that, like, everyone in the family besides the dad seemed to have, like, a important bond with grandpa seth and that everyone's missing him really you know i almost teared up really at the end mm. yeah when he like says when he was... this time i'll be gone forever yeah that's devastating mm -hmm. it's like you know he has to finally let go of grandpa seth like for good and move on and i feel like we've all experienced that and yeah, it's just, it just broke my heart. Yeah. And when the 
The ghost of Grandpa Seth accidentally appears in Holly's room because he doesn't know the layout of the house yet. Um, that's another just touching scene. I mean, it's it tells it shows you that you know even as a ghost, he's a he's a flawed, uh, you know, fallible person just mm -hmm. like all of us. That was a brilliant, uh, like I idea. Like a, I loved that. Mm-hmm. Um. Yeah, you know, I, I was thinking a lot about Grandpa Seth, too, uh, in the last Did, few years. Yeah. Okay. Uh, and I was thinking about, you know, he says that no one but Joshua and the family will listen to him. Mm -hmm. So it seems like they have some kind of block that won't allow them to, you know, access the spiritual realm or something like that. Um and I wonder, like, is there something about the characterization of the other family members that gives us a sense of, like, what it is they're missing that Joshua has? Yeah. Well, he's the youngest, and it's commonly understood that children, you know, they're more open to things like the supernatural and paranormal and, you know, fantasy and stuff like that. Um, so it makes perfect sense. And I think it's a common trope in films to have the youngest kid be the one that's seeing and knowing things that are, you know, too fantastic for the older people to see and understand or believe or whatever. That's true. So, we had Danny in The Shining. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, yeah. I, I kind of felt like uh, the mother, Diana had a kind of childlike nature to her though that maybe yeah. we can see where joshua gets it like when uh joshua tells her that he's been told a bedtime story about goblins she then goes down and has a conversation with her husband and she asks him at the end of the scene michael who are the goblins mm -hmm. as if they're really goblins um and yeah yeah, and it's not even she's asking what are goblins? Like, who are the goblins? Like, she maybe thinks that they're a neighboring family or something. Um, so that yeah, was, I... like, a really powerful moment showing her sort of innocence, childlike innocence, I think. Yeah, totally. And, like, at first you kind of don't like her, but then she does that and you're like, oh, okay, well, so maybe she's not so, like, uptight and, you know, disbelieving and... I was kind of disappointed we didn't get to see his reaction. Like, what, how did he respond to who are the goblins? Yeah, because, you know, I actually think he's kind of... I don't know. He he seems much more blocked to me. Where, yes. Like, for instance, he has that famous line, uh, You can't piss on hospitality! I won't allow it! Which I think kind of indicates that, you know, he doesn't... He's not really able to distinguish between, like, physical things like piss and abstract concepts like hospitality you know it's like those things belong in different worlds but there they are in the same sentence and yeah. it's like he thinks that you could literally piss on hospitality right um, so do you think maybe he was speaking metaphorically or mm. like well but he's denying he... it right he's saying you can't piss on hospitality which in one sense is true but, so he's, I guess, 
I, I guess it's too profound for me to understand. Mm. Um, it is a really deep literally? film. I mean, yeah, I think uh, we'll have to let our audience decide on that one. Mm. Um, mm-hmm. The exact sort of meaning of that. But I, I definitely think hospitality is mm-hmm. a major theme of the film. Right. Um, that word appears over and over in the dialogue. Um, and it's a story that's really about um, the breaking of that bond between the guest and the host, right? Um, yeah. This town is supposed to be hospitable to the family that's in like a vacation exchange project with one of their families. Well, that's um, the basis of the movie... Uh shit i can't remember the name of it it's a it's a very famous uh romantic comedy well anyway the, the the premise of that movie is basically the same thing it's like two people decide they want to switch houses in different places mm-hmm. so it's definitely a thing that happens yeah well i think it's also a major theme of homer's odyssey uh is the okay. the abuse of hospitality right because oh. First, Paris is a guest at Menelaus's court, and he absconds with his wife, Helen. That causes the Trojan War. And then, uh, as Odysseus is making his way home, he keeps encountering people who are inhospitable in various ways. The Cyclops says, for your guest gift, I'll just eat you one by one. Meanwhile, back at, in Ithaca, uh, Odysseus's wife, uh, Penelope is having to put up with these suitors who won't go away and who are just guests and who just eat up all of their their living, basically, right? Their their livelihood. Um, mm-hmm. And so, you know, I think Troll 2 really taps into this mythic imagination um, that goes back to the earliest stories that we have um, and the central concern of hospitality, or the Greek word is xenia. So that's probably what they were going for. Okay. I was also thinking uh, this time watching it um, about the sort of intertwining themes of masculinity and cannibalism in the film. There's the famous uh, conversation between Elliot and Holly, which is a, a rare moment of comic relief in the film. And I have to say, you know, the the comedic dialogue here is really sort of sparkling as well. It's really, um, it's funny, but it's funny in a smart way, you know, like, um, uh, Mm -hmm. so I'll just, I'll just read this exchange. Uh, Elliot says to Holly, are you trying to turn me into a homo? And she says, it wouldn't be hard. If my father discovers you here, he'll cut off your little nuts and eat them. So, I mean, first off like that, that exchange it just feels so real right like this is how teenagers talk um you know they threaten each other with their fathers eating their little nuts right um it's just a totally natural thing to say it's not bizarre at all i've heard it a lot to be honest yeah i mean yeah just go on go on twitter go on tiktok i mean this is what you'll see um but uh I think there's something under the surface there, yeah. right? Which is 
um, this sort of uh, rivalry that's being imagined between the father, Michael, and Elliot for Holly's affection um, is, is in danger of turning Michael into a cannibal, much like the goblins, someone who will eat human flesh. And uh, that sort of rivalry between the, the father and the, the lover, um, it's another sort of classic mythic element to the story. Um, but it's explored here in a really interesting way. Michael, I think, is is in this really complex situation where he needs to protect his daughter, but he's in danger of tipping over and becoming one of the goblins if he if he goes too far. Um, meanwhile, you know, Elliot, in order to prove his masculinity, he has to pursue this this contest with this other man. Um, so I think there's a lot of insight into into you know, masculinity in the modern world, just, just in that one little exchange. It sounds like, it sounds like vaguely Freudian to me. Oh, definitely. Yeah. I think there's a lot of, I mean, we already talked about the line early on where Joshua references the, the unconscious, um, and the ability to sort of project your desires onto the world. So, um, yeah, I mean, it just are there any uh, fields of discourse that Fragasso cannot plumb in this screenplay? I don't even know. Mm. Yeah, it's a good point. I also picked up on some like ancient fairy lore sort mm. of themes going on. You know, the with the Stonehenge, Stonehenge, and and um, in ancient fairy tales and i mean actual tales about fairies you know you're not supposed to eat or drink anything they give you mm. so there's that and yeah there's it's like a, a another sort of mythic element that sort of you see in a lot of fairy tales is like the the seductive person or the seductive gift that you can't resist mm -hmm. but then it does something bad to you also like the whole hades persephone thing Maybe you could explain that a little more. Well, Persephone wasn't supposed to eat anything, right? Mm. And she ate the pomegranate yeah, ate the... seeds, and then therefore she's right. stuck there. So, yeah, you know, I was I was thinking a lot of Ovid's Metamorphoses too while while watching this. Oh yeah. Um, yeah, which is the the ancient Roman epic poem uh, describing Greek mythology, including the the rape of uh, Persephone, and uh, uh, you know, it's a it's a poem that's all about how changeable everything in life is. How you can't step into the same river twice. It's actually a, a neo Pythagorean poem, and so the way that it illustrates that is with all these stories about people being transformed into various things but often they get transformed into a plant like narcissus oh yeah or hy hyacinthus or adonis You're or right. you know, various um characters in greek mythology it's like a very common thing that's very and so true. i was wondering like could that be the key to this film's engagement with the theme of vegetarianism you know like is this the chink in their logic that 
vegetarians think that they can avoid eating meat by eating plants, but really, how do you know that the plant wasn't a person who was transformed into green goop by goblins? You really can never know that. So, what, you know? Yeah, they're checkmate. They're very mysterious creatures. Mm -hmm. What else did you did you think the film was saying about vegetarianism? Because I've I've heard that, um, uh, or I mean I've seen in uh, the writings about this film. I mean, of course, there's a vast critical literature about this film, and we can't begin to uh, address the many uh, brilliant analyses that have been made of the. Of the themes of the film but um the uh, uh co-writer of the story for gasso's wife rosella drudy said that she was inspired to write this story after some of her uh friends had become vegetarian and she said that was really annoying mm. um so yeah so in what way is this film a brilliant deconstruction of vegetarianism you say well, I, I think it's obvious that, you know, she, she feels a certain way about vegetarians. Um, mm -hmm. I can definitely understand how, you know, they could be seen as villainous to some people. Mm -hmm. You know, it's kind of like monstrous, uh, even. monstrous and. It's that whole, like, you're different than me, so you're bad, you know? Mm -hmm. It's like... It's a truism. Yeah. It's like one of the oldest tropes there is. But also, I mean, I think it really shows that vegetarians are... They think of themselves as being nonviolent, right? Yeah. Um, but really, what could be more violent than eating plants which are living things too right so and it's kind of hypocritical exactly like how can you you know decry us and there's the classic scene with the pastor uh uh riling up the congregation of goblins with how revolting meat eating is um talking about they're eating stinking carcasses and you using this this language of disgust right um but then what could be more revolting than you know just eating a meal that has nothing but plants in it just just like a salad or something i mean that's un unthinkable that and they're talking and I about think this film really shows that they they don't like humans because humans eat meat but they eat humans so, right yeah so they're hypocritical yeah. as well in the same way that real vegetarians are mm -hmm. we've talked a lot about allusions to earlier literary works um, and filmic works. I think there are a lot of other ones we could have pointed out as well. Um, there's obviously the brilliant homage at the end of the film to the changeling when the baseball rolls down the steps, uh, all seemingly all on its own towards Joshua, mm -hmm. you know, which leads right into the famous uh, closing line of the film. Do you want some Joshua? Mm -hmm. um which uh i have to say another thing about the film just this is a bit of a tangent but um the lip syncing on the goblins is it's so 
perfect. I don't know how they did it because, I mean, you can barely tell that, you know, it's not real lips that are moving and instead it's like a puppet's head that can barely move at all. Wait, um, you're, t- you're telling me that that was lip syncing? Yeah, I think they, they must have dubbed the voice over and then that... in the shot, he's just like moving the mouth open and shut to the extent that the mask will allow. I had I had no idea. I that what? Yeah, it's it's amazing. So, but anyway, I mean that's a moment where it's sort of uh, reflecting on an earlier film in a in a really smart way, right? Because like, sure, this film has nothing to do with the Changeling, uh, but that was an earlier famous moment in a horror film, so it makes perfect sense to bring that in here. Uh, at the at the very conclusion of this film um but i think there are also a lot of moments in more recent films that are callbacks to uh troll 2 so can you think of any more recent films that sort of reminded you of this or now in retrospect you realize like oh wow that's got to be the influence of troll 2 i mean i i can't imagine any modern horror film didn't take something away from this but yeah. I think I'm so blown away by this whole thing that I can't put anything on its level. So I do, do you? Well, I just kept thinking about Midsummer, the uh horror film about the Swedish uh cult. Uh-huh. That came out just I think last year. It's really similar in that Everything happens, for the most part, in broad daylight, right? Like, I think the, the the chase sequence at the beginning of this film is so striking, right? Because, I mean, you have that terrifying chase theme that plays um, that just sounds like it's, I mean, it's very synth heavy, so it sounds like maybe it comes from a video game, but I would say like a really terrifying survival horror game like uh, Sonic the Hedgehog or something. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh you've got this guy uh with a comical hat running through the forest uh being chased by goblins and it's it's clearly meant to be this horrifying scene but it's in broad daylight and in fact the 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 uh we have this constant lens flares from the bright sunlight getting into the camera lens mm. um and i think it just it really it's almost the director flaunting the fact that he can scare us even in broad daylight. He doesn't need to rely on, you know, cheap tricks like putting us into a traditionally scary, dark environment. Um, and that's something I think Ari Aster picked up on with uh, Midsummer. Yeah, I can see that. So did we have any uh, other thoughts about this uh, this one? How do you even articulate your thoughts when you've been completely blown away like i haven't seen a movie that good in years maybe yeah so for decades even it's like one of those that you have to think about for a while because it keeps having an effect on you mm-hmm. so i think you know as the months go on, I'm going to have more and more thoughts and opinions and feelings as they unfold because, yeah, I my mind is like 
frozen in just awe. Mm-hmm. So yeah, same here, same here. Um, it's gonna be hard to top that one. Uh, I think maybe we've made a mistake by putting the best of the ten films that we'll cover in this season first. Yeah, I was gonna say. But uh, we shall see. Uh, next time we're gonna be watching Jennifer's Body. Oh yeah. Yeah. Oh, was that my idea? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Nice. Yeah, it got displaced by by Troll Two. We were gonna do it first. Okay. Um, but then uh, good on you for keeping track of like two. the things that I say and recommend. Cause I don't know. yeah, I just have so many spreadsheets and. Yeah, you're the um, you're the more organized one. Okay, so uh, yeah, join us then, and uh, see you next time. Bye.